Well, thank you for coming. And thank you particularly to your local saints, Michael and Bernadette, for inviting me. It's a, it's a really great honor. And although I'm an English person, person and an Anglican, as you've heard, my birthday is St. Patrick's Day. And those of you who can do arithmetic, I was born in 1950, so you'll realize that less than two weeks away is, is a significant birthday. I look forward to it. And I do have an Irish great-grandmother. So I feel very comfortable to be with you. And of course we have a perfect reason for congregating, to inaugurate a library of spirituality, especially on World Book Day, in honor of which, and by way of thanks for this incomparable privilege, I will be donating a few books to the library. Firstly, some of my own books, which you've already heard a little bit about, and the new, what is it, why do we need it, and how to get it. That's actually not due to be published until the 19th of March, so if you get a copy today, you'll be ahead of the, ahead of the crowd. I'm also going to give two books donated by the author Monica Renz, um, whose research shows that people's spiritual growth continues right to the end of life, dying of transition, and uh, hope and grace spiritual experiences in severe distress, illness, and dying. And finally, I'd also like to present the gift of a first edition copy of Thomas Merton's Conjectures of a Guilty Bystander, signed by Merton, which I managed to acquire some years ago from the Thomas Merton Center in Louisville, Kentucky. I shall also be speaking about some other particularly special books later, but first wish to consider several key words and their meanings. The title of this lecture, Journeying with Psyche and Soul in Spirituality, was not a personal choice, but a very interesting one, given to me by our hosts. So, what do these words mean? Well, let's start with the easy word, journeying. In the present context, this may suggest that life is a pilgrimage, a journey with a sacred purpose, a journey perhaps with recognisable stages, aimed towards some kind of spiritual goal. Let's for the moment call that goal spiritual maturity, or wisdom. Now what about the words psyche, soul, and spirituality? I have been involved in many unresolved discussions about these. But how can you pin down and define the indefinable without taking a life out of it? I am mindful of poet Aline Kilmer's 216 comment that, quote, Many excellent words are ruined by too definite knowledge of their meaning. So to, today I'll take my cue from Lewis Carroll and Humpty Dumpty, who, as you remember, said, when I use a word, it means just what I choose it to mean, though neither more nor less. So to set the scene, I will start by saying that human spirituality, as well as wisdom, has something to do with awe, mystery, wonder, meaning and purpose, fate, destiny, kismet, karma, providence, God, God's will, and with a deep heartfelt sense of self-worth and belonging. Spirituality has something to do with not only wisdom, but with awe, mystery, wonder, meaning and purpose, fate, destiny, karma, providence, God's will, and a deep heartfelt sense of self-worth and belonging. The word psyche is a Greek word and denotes, according to one dictionary, 
personification of the soul as female or as a butterfly. This seems appropriate as the life cycles of caterpillars, their pupae and butterflies symbolize change, growth, evolution. And butterflies even appear on the emblem <coughs> and shield of the British Royal College of Psychiatrists. You can just about see these things, I suppose, in the Bible. <laughs> and the motto, let wisdom guide. According to the Oxford English Dictionary, psyche means the soul, the spirit, or the animating principle of the universe. Which means, of course, that our definitions are already going round in circles. Especially as anima, as in animate, the animating principle, is a Latin word for soul. However, yet another, possibly more helpful meaning for psyche is, and I quote, the collective mental or psychological characteristics <coughs> of a people. For tonight's purposes then, I shall go with that. The collective mental or psychological characteristics of a people. In 2020, we live in an increasingly globalized society, so we can for now translate psyche perhaps as world mind, or species mind, homo spiritualis, if that's all right with you. The word soul can be defined as, quote, the spiritual or immaterial part of a human being, regarded as immortal. It is usually contrasted with the body, with the corporeal, worldly, material, or temporal aspects of human existence. I shall need to say more about this later. The word spirit from which, of course, the word spirituality is derived, is defined in the dictionary in near identical ways. For example, the non-physical part of a person. The word comes from the Latin spiritus, originally meaning breath or wind, which came later to, the, to denote life force or cosmic energy. And similar words in other languages were derived the same way. For example, pneuma in Greek, ruach, in Hebrew, prana in Sanskrit, chi in Chinese. So this is the universal wind, blowing us along on our journey. I sometimes use the analogy of a hot air balloon. And here we are in the basket, being blown along. But because we keep pace with it as the wind blows us, we are not necessarily conscious of this mysterious wind, but do well nevertheless to tune into it as best we can and pay attention to our fellow travellers on the same spiritual journey. Having said all this, we are still left with a confusing degree of definitional uniformity between these words, soul and spirit. Let's try and find a way out. It seems to me to help if, intellectually then, we separate and distinguish between a personal soul and a universal spirit. Everyone, as individual people, is influenced internally, either more or less consciously, by a powerful, invisible, cosmic breath or wind. I have to emphasize intellectually because we are also obliged to hold in our imagination the idea of a seamless and permanent connection between the two, indwelling soul and all-pervasive spirit. This is what's called a paradox. The two can be distinguished from each other mentally but, as we can also imagine, they are undivided, as if connected by some kind of unbreakable, non-perishable elastic, not really separate at all. So our individual souls 
are permanently connected and in tune with the overarching universal spirit. Nevertheless, some kind of split does occur, and we have to call the separated off but still connected part something. The term I prefer, because I've used it in my books really, uh, I've got used to calling it the everyday ego, what we each think of as me in daily life, in contrast to which there is the spiritual self, the soul. Others, Thomas Merton for example, have referred to these split parts of one human being as the false self and the true self. The two parts become split from each other early in life, setting up a dissonance between them. The journey of life, then, involves the split or dissonance growing, and in ideal cases later, with wisdom and maturity, closing back again. This is what Richard Raw, in his 2012 book Falling Upward, refers to as the journey into the second half of our own lives. This is the sacred journey we are all on to reunite our everyday egos with our spiritual selves. I'd like to recap this quickly with the help of a diagram. I call it the meaning of life diagram. And it's much too complicated at the moment. Uh, so don't pay too much attention. Uh, um, I'm going to break it down for you. And let's look at just one line. So there we go. As life goes forward, the ego and the soul appear to separate. Uh, and then there's a, a split or dissonance, a tension between them. And then in the second half of life, integration. It's a simple idea. Begin, beginning with what some have called a pristine ego, the split between the everyday ego and the soul or spiritual self normally grows quickly in the early years of life. As adulthood approaches, we each have to manage two opposing drives. The first is to conform and belong, on the one hand, and the second, to think, speak and act independently. So to conform and belong, or to think, speak and act independently, to juggle these. And so to, to make progress on the spiritual path, it is necessary to individuate, as Jung called it not only to grow increasingly independent-minded, but also to take increasing responsibility for one's thoughts, words, and actions. As we make our way in the world, it can be said to go through stages, and adapting James Fowler's rightly celebrated formulation, the first three or four, the first four I have uh, renamed, uh, I call them egocentric conditioning conformist and individual. Again, I'm not going to go into great detail of this diagram. But this is, this is Raw's first half of life, dominated by worldly aims and ambitions. And here we have the full picture, uh, which I'll come back to, the second part. So the first half is dominated by worldly aims and ambitions, which Raw says involves surviving successfully by establishing an identity, home base, family and friends, livelihood, regular pastimes, and so on. The essential aspects of community and security. These are the sum of our attachments and aversions, our likes and dislikes. For the majority of people, that is all there is. 
valuing a sense of belonging and prizing what is familiar, habitual and safe. Some go further into a more individual way of life, but remain at risk of retaining a self-centered orientation, a focus on me and what's mine, holding on to their achievements. Some should say, uh, I should say something briefly about the, the traje these trajectories, low, medium and high. And this simply reflects that some people are naturally more aware of and harmoniously engaged with the spiritual dimension than others and have a smoother path. You will also see that it is, this is a slightly more complicated version of the same diagram, you will also see that it is possible to shift tra trajectory whenever something happens. You can go, as it were, greater dissonance in the early part and come back in the second half. If there's time, I can come back to this. If, I appreciate that. In a short time, it's quite a complicated set of ideas. So, what we're saying is that from individual stage four, where you've got the infancy, the egocentric, uh, very early days, conditioning young uh, children, uh, very much uh, uh, learning from their, their family and their cultural environment, uh, moving on into a conformist phase and then a more individual phase. Now we come on to the uh, the second half. So what happens in the second half of life, this less temporal, more spiritual half? In this scheme there are two more stages, called here the integration, and in this older slide, teaching and healing, I now call it the universal stage, but it is a time when people become natural teachers and natural healers. So in the integration and universal stages, and this is where some people Spiritual pioneers like Thomas Merton and the Dalai Lama, for example, are already leading us well ahead of the world mind, the general cultural psyche or zeitgeist. How can the rest of us follow, catch up, and serve as exemplars in our turn? Well, then I hope you agree, is one important purpose of a spiritual institute dedicated to research and education like SPIRE this marvellous Dublin spire pointing heavenward. <laughs> Such an institute surely has it as its purpose not only to learn and teach about spirituality, but also to exemplify and foster genuine, authentic spiritual growth in individuals and communities alike. For Christians, of course, the universal breath energy is designated the Holy Spirit, an aspect of the Holy Trinity of God, a blessed gift to encourage, heal, that is, make whole, strengthen and guide people on our spiritual journeys. So look, let's look more closely at this word holy in regard to spirit. Related as it is to both wholeness and holistic, the word holy brings to mind an undivided, unitary vision, a seamless, timeless and infinite whole, one that can only dimly and incompletely be grasped by the dualist or binary working mentality of the ordinary mind of our everyday egos. But an undivided whole with which each of us is in permanent, if mostly unconscious, communication in the depths of our true selves through the mediation of our souls. Monotheists, Christians, Jews and Muslims share a hope and the expectation through faith, do they not, of a loving God's grace bestowed through his infinite mercy 
according to which, through the influence of the Holy Spirit, this dissonance I've been discussing between everyday ego and spiritual self is reduced. The split comes to be healed. We are made whole. But note, this is a lifelong journey. It takes time, and we have to help it along. I'm going later to say a little bit about how. So let's examine again the term spirituality and the notion of a spiritual dimension to human experience and understanding. In doing so, I wish briefly to introduce a scheme consisting of just five seamlessly interlinked dimensions covering the entirety of human understanding and experience. The physical dimension of energy and matter, called the miracle of existence, the biological dimension of organs and organisms, the miracle of life, the psychological dimension of mental activity, the miracle of consciousness, the social dimension uh, of relationships between people, the miracle of love, and the spiritual dimension, souls and the sacred, the miracle of unity. In this scheme, the spiritual dimension takes pride of place, appearing, appearing as an originating principle, seamlessly creating, linking, and shaping the other four. The psyche, or world mind, according to the current, I would say, incomplete, science-orientated, materialist paradigm, tends to dismiss the spiritual dimension, concerning itself with the first four only, the physical universe and its temporal manifestations. This is the secular, left-brain world of words and numbers, of science and technology, of reason, of evidence and calculation, the world of progress, of profit and loss, of the tragic imperative of growth economics, of merciless consumerism and advertising, of eco-destruction and global warming, of increasingly devastating natural disasters, widespread human aggression, and the resulting displacement of millions, both as refugees and as so-called economic migrants. This is the resounding shambles we are in. How did we get there? Well, for example, according to Thomas Merton, in this book of his Alaska conferences, uh, written in the last months of his life in 1968, he says that since the philosopher Descartes announced, I think, therefore I am, in the 1600s, humans have been living in error. The sub subsequent interpretation of this phrase has always since been about reason, about thinking rationally, logical, binary thinking, either or thinking, following Descartes, therefore, tends, Merton says, <coughs> and I quote, to make the individual person central to his or her self-enclosed universe seeing everything and everyone else as an object. Thus, in our secular Western culture, we define ourselves as separate from other people and have grown increasingly mechanistic and materialistic to the detriment of humanity and of the world. So let me say a bit more about wisdom. Wisdom can be defined as a form of knowledge, sacred and intuitive knowledge, in contrast to scientific evidence-based information. Wisdom, I'm quoting from my own uh, new book here. Wisdom is, 
the knowledge of how to be and behave for the best for all concerned in any given situation. The knowledge of how to be and behave for the best for all concerned in any given situation. As such, it can be seen to depend upon recognition of our profound kinship to each other. This is clearly <coughs> the opposite of, and the antidote to Descartes, Descartes' induced self-centeredness. We human beings are ultimately of one kind. Hence the value of kindness, kindness, and an inescapably urgent need to re-sacralize human culture. I hope you will agree with me that what we see is spiritual progress throughout the world, aimed at gently pulling everything back from discord towards social well-being, health, and harmony. Wisdom is intuitive, of the moment. It cannot be said to depend on any particular beliefs, ideological, political, religious or non-religious. A belief, in my view, is often a form of ego attachment, and much more important are deeply personal, spiritual experiences. To fit in with the theme of holiness, we can say, therefore, that wisdom ultimately depends on having a profound and mysterious sense of both personal and cosmic wholeness. Thomas Merton, in his Asian journal, put it like this. We are already one, but we imagine that we are not. And what we have to recover is our original unity. What we have to be is what we are. Even from the perspective of the world mind, the finding of science provide good evidence that all people everywhere past, present and future, are connected to one another, and equally to everything else in the universe. To, to begin with, physics and chemistry teach that everything originated billions of years ago with the Big Bang, that the first stars formed of hydrogen and helium eventually burned away and finally blew apart with such tremendous force as to create and spread wide all the atoms of the periodic table, leading to the creation of a multitude of galaxies, including our own, our solar system of planets, universally collected, still, by a mysterious force known as quantum entanglement. Perhaps you have heard of it. Biology, in turn, says that the same stardust atoms contribute to carbon-based life forms that share a genetic heritage and evolutionary pathway towards the astonishing diversity and sophistication of life on Earth today. The oxygen that we humans all breathe and share is produced in green plants by photosynthesis, entrapping light energy from the sun, our local star. The same oxygen, combined with carbon, is taken back up by plants and reused in a continuous cycle. It is clear from such observations that we are each inex inextricably bound up with nature. Psychology reveals in addition that human beings share universal faculties, among them the five senses, being able to learn, think, calculate and reason, the ability to speak and act, also a range of emotions, both painful and pleasurable. As extensively elaborated in his magnificent book, The Master and His Emissary, Ian McGilchrist reports how neuroscience tells us that the two sides of our brains work on different agendas. They're usually dominant, verbal, binary left hemisphere, analyzing and dividing things into their constituent parts, 
like a spotlight. And in contrast, the usually neglected, silent, unitary, intuitive, right brain, appreciating things whole, in context, moment by moment, like a floodlight. Sociology and anthropology have also revealed significant commonalities of social groupings and behaviour. All these scientific observations combine to allow us at least an intellectual grasp of multiple cosmic interconnections. Importantly though, in terms of the spiritual journey, we can also both improve our chances of experiencing universal oneness and develop our understanding of this vital, vital principle of existence through what we might call wisdom exercises. It is possible, our destiny even, to know this sacred unity personally, not just intellectually, but through the direct percep perceptive capacity of the human soul, to experience it as a deeply seated, life-changing, indelible and incontrovertible truth. It is only such a spiritual experience that allows a person to feel wonderfully, vibrantly and eternally connected to the divine totality of the universe, to all nature, and through this to everything and everyone else, to every other pers person, regardless of age, race, belief system, colour, gender or anything. This kind of intuitive awareness, whether come by gradually or through a sudden epiphany, marks the entry point to reintegration of ego and soul. This is the start of the homecoming phase of our journey. Many of you will be familiar with Merton's Epiphany in Louisville on the 18th of March 1958 on a trip out from the monastery. Uh, this is taken from a book of Jeffers, a guilty bystander. In Louisville, at the corner of Fourth and Walnut, in the centre of the shopping district, I was suddenly overwhelmed with the realisation that I loved all those people that they were mine and I theirs, that we could not be alien to one another, even though we were total strangers. What changes then? What changes as a person moves into the integration stage? Becoming aware of universal connectivity means naturally and spontaneously feeling motivated to take increasingly increasing responsibility for our thoughts, words and actions. Not only this, but also importantly for what we do not speak up about and things left undone. Instead of prizing security and leisure, position, possessions and power, we increasingly recognise that spiritual growth occurs through letting go and through engaging with adversity, our own and that of others, rather than by persistently trying to avoid or anaesthetise ourselves from it. And this leads us to discover and adopt a set of spiritual values as against worldly ambitions. Such values as, to name a few, compassion, forgiveness, generosity, gratitude, honesty, humility, simplicity, frugality, peace, joy and love. These are the alchemical elements that combine and contribute naturally towards wisdom. As such, they are the very attributes of what I would call supreme mental health, which is, of course, very much more than the absence of mental illness. So what are wisdom exercises? How do we change? 
How do we become spiritually mature and grow in wisdom? It is a big subject, but let's get started with another theme from our focal point this evening, the library. In addition to books, something else we tend to associate with a library is silence. I often say this, spirituality is where the deeply personal meets the universal. So let me tell you a personal story. I make no great apology for doing so on the grounds that we do well to share instructive stories of our personal spiritual journeys with each other. I hope you will like this one because it's about an occasion, both momentous and ordinary, when I had the feeling that God was speaking directly into my ear. So, once upon a time, once upon a time I lived in Australia. It was the 1970s, and there I associated, associated briefly with some Tibetan Buddhist lamas. I learned a lot from them, in particular how to meditate. Back in England in the early 80s, deliberately taking time out, not having worked for many months because unsure what to do next, I went to a newly established Buddhist retreat centre in Cumbria on the banks of Morecambe Bay. I should mention that my Christian practice had been in abeyance for some time. I had not been to church for several years, and I was sitting alone in silent meditation in the meditation room of this place one afternoon when the Lord's Prayer started running through my otherwise utterly still mind, to be followed by the words and tunes of hymns from my childhood. You may know this one. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. Be all else but naught to me, say that thou art. Be thou my best thought in the day and the night, waking and sleeping, thy presence my life. Thanks for the help on that. <laughs> well, I thought to myself, you're in the wrong place, Larry. At that stage, the religious life appealed to me, and I had begun thinking of the possibility of becoming a Buddhist layperson, or even a monk. But I knew I wasn't a Buddhist, and as it turned out, God had other plans. The next day I walked in warm sunshine through the retreat-centred garden, and a patch of woodland, down to the banks of the bay, where there was a stone bench. Once again I sat alone, in stillness and silence, going deep enough into a trance to become oblivious for a time to myself and my surroundings. I do not know how long I was there, but suddenly I was fully awake and alert, and there were words, as if put straight from the void into my head, strong, clear, and authoritative. You are a psychiatrist, Larry. That is what you are trained to do. Go and do that. So the next day I drove back to London, and soon after, looking at the physician's vacant pages of the latest medical journal, I saw advertised the job I knew would be mine. I went immediately to see the professor of psychiatry at St. George's Hospital in London, applied, as he had encouraged me to do, and was eventually appointed to the post. The next few years were not totally plain sailing. I had to continue training and take two sets of professional exams, and then compete for jobs on the crowded career ladder. But I was always confident. 
having the Holy Spirit on my side. What I had, you could say, was faith. The strongest sense of walking with Jesus beside me. The point is that I was able to access the source of that guidance and faith through silence, stillness and solitude, through meditation, or as you may prefer to think of it, silent prayer. And this for me is the most valuable of all possible wisdom exercises, enhancing the others, which are all aimed similarly at strengthening the connection, the conscious connection between soul and spirit. In my recent books on my Psychology Today blog and through the worldwide wave of wisdom, I have been encouraging people to adopt a spiritual development plan, or for those less comfortable with the idea of spirituality, a personal growth program, according to which the simplest daily wisdom practice routine, PGP or SDP, might consist of up to five parts as follows. Regular quiet time for meditation, reflection or prayer. Appropriate study of religious, spiritual or other wisdom material, poetry, philosophy, etc. Maintaining supportive friendships with others who share similar humanitarian or spiritual aims and values. Regular acts of service, kindness and compassion. And time spent engaging meaningfully with nature. There is not time to include a more complete list which of course includes regular acts of worship. But here is, pardon me, a short passage from my new title on the Big Book of Wisdom. Wisdom practices of a holistic and spiritual nature can be divided into two main types, religious and secular. These are of time-honoured value and have in common that they improve personal harmony by restoring an ideal balance between the left and right brain hemispheres and so between spiritual and worldly values. These practices promote personal equanimity in the face of threats, also, also foster natural grieving and healing in the face of loss, with personal growth as a natural and permanent consequence. Between people, even people from widely different backgrounds, who may not even have a common language, shared holistic and spiritual practices tend to promote fellow feeling and friendship. This evening, it is right that I focus on the first two recommended components, regular quiet time and appropriate study. So before going on to mention some more books that I have found helpful on my spiritual journey, I will add a word about reflection, reading reflectively, lectio divina as the Latin has it, or to use another word, contemplation. This is Thomas Merton again in his book, New Seeds of Contemplation. Contemplation is the highest expression of a person's intellectual and spiritual life. It is that life itself, fully awake, fully active, fully aware that it is alive. It is spiritual wonder. It is spontaneous awe at the sacredness of life, of being. It is gratitude for life, for awareness and for being. It is vivid realisation of the fact that life and being in us proceed from an invisible, transcendent, an infinitely abundant source. Contemplation is, above all, awareness of the reality of that source. It knows the source, obscurely, inexplicably, but with a certitude that goes both beyond reason and beyond simple faith. I really like that. So here are a few of the impressive books, the contemplation of which has helped me, 
I want to start by briefly reminding you of some of the books already mentioned, the book by James Fowler, by Richard Raw, and Ian McGilchrist. And there are Merton's books, uh, Conjectures of a Guilty Bystander, who seeds a contemplation his Asian journal and Merton in Alaska. Also, of course, the, auto the autobiographical account of his conversion, the seven-story mountain. And I'd like to mention the way of Chuen Tzu, so that I can introduce you to the source text in a chapter. I'm going to read some extracts. Where there is division, there is something which is not divided. When there is questioning, there is something beyond the question. Why is this? The sage keeps his wisdom to himself, while ordinary people flaunt their knowledge in loud discussion. So I say, those who dispute do not see. I remember that when I listen to the radio sometimes. They're the experts. Second one. Perfect is the person who knows what comes from heaven and what comes from mankind. Knowing what comes from heaven, he or she is in tune with heaven. Knowing what comes from mankind, she uses her knowledge of the known to develop her knowledge of the unknown and enjoys the fullness of life until her natural death. This is the perfection of knowledge. However, there is one difficulty. Knowledge must be based upon something, but one is not certain what this may be. How indeed do I know that what I call heaven is not actually mankind, and that what I call mankind is actually heaven? First, there must be a true person, a true human being. Then, there can be true knowledge. Uh, this, uh, this book, you can probably tell, is beautifully illustrated, and with calligraphy as well as photographs. The same with this version of the Dao Ching, which I also recommend. Um, but there are other versions in different translations, which are, you can't get hold of the other one. So please do not be afraid of Eastern religions and philosophy. I, uh, religions and philosophy. I can vouch for how much they have enhanced my Christian understanding, providing holistic insights into the Gospel of Christ. Particularly helpful, and non-threatening too, has been the Dhammapada, or the sayings of the Buddha. Uh, here again there are illustrated and non-illustrated versions available. Let me read from the first of the 40 chapters. We are what we think. All that we are arises with our thoughts. With our thoughts we make the world. I, and I adapt that. With our imagination, with our creativity. Uh, more than just with our thoughts. With our emotions also. We are what we think. All that we are arises with our thoughts. With our thoughts we make the world. Speak or act with an impure mind and trouble will follow you as the wheel follows the ox that draws the cart. Speak or act with a pure mind and happiness will follow you, as your shadow, unshakable. I recommend, I recommend familiarizing yourself as well with the principle of Hindu text, Bhagavad Gita, and the Upanishads. There are plenty of other books I can name that have influenced me and been helpful, including books like Mother Teresa's A Simple Path, and one you may or may not have come across, Neil Douglas Clott's revealing book, the Hidden Gospel, D. 
decoding the spiritual message of the Aramaic Jesus. But finally, I must mention two highly praiseworthy volumes whose authors or editors are present with us tonight. They've actually been mentioned already by Michael. Noel Keating's Meditation with Children. By the way, the books that I'm donating are all on here if he wants to have a look at them. I think you put up a copy of Noel's book up here to have a look at too. Um, speaking as a recently appointed school governor in a school where character education is an important part of the curriculum, I'm sure that teaching children to meditate is the way to go to transform secular culture and the world's psyche over time. As David Hay and Rebecca Knight have shown in their book The Spirit of the Child, young children almost all have a significant degree of spiritual awareness, or as the authors call it, relational consciousness. But this faculty diminishes as the teenage years approach. Meditation counters the effect of secular cultural pressures. What I particularly like about Noel's book is the way he explains and distinguishes between the practical benefits and the spiritual fruits of meditation. Highly recommend it. The final book on my list tonight is The Chamber of the Spirituality in Society and the is edited by Laszlo Zolnein and Bernadette Fanny. This impressive volume vigorously promotes a new paradigm for human self-understanding, one that necessarily includes a spiritual dimension, providing more than a benchmark of current thinking and research that will serve for many as a reliable signpost and a genuine beacon of hope. Whereas each of the chapters tend to be scholarly, cautious and well-referenced, attempting to encapsulate spirituality in a specific context Read together, they announce something wonderful, a significant measure of agreement in every, every sphere of human endeavor covered. Some quotes. Numerous studies document that the more people prioritize materialistic goals, the lower their well-being, and the more likely they are to engage in manipulative, competitive, and ecologically degrading behaviors. Second. Professions which want to surpass the ecological, social, and ethical mess that modernity has created are beginning to articulate within their own ranks the need to embrace spirituality and develop practices based on a less materialistic, more holistic worldview. And about the need for deeply personal engagement, quote, we came to acknowledge that the essential feature of transformative research is the scholar's encounter with the sacred. The scholar's encounter with the sacred. A journey of transformation that involves the researcher's understanding of the topic and themselves as human beings. The range of the 51 subjects covered is vast, from agriculture to architecture, ecology to economics, from movies to martial arts, through peace, policing, and politics, etc. The book contains many additional nuggets of wisdom. You do not have to be involved in education, for example, to see that the following statement implicitly contains advice for every professional, politician, parent, indeed for any person engaged in human relations at work, in community, or at home. This is what they say. Having a deep, authentic presence in the classroom, whereby a teacher stands centered, confident, and present to self is critical to a teacher creating and generating an ambience of safety, setting boundaries, and being mindfully present to the task in hand. 
having a deep, authentic presence. For both their vision and hard work, the publishers, editors and authors are to be thanked and congratulated. The common psyche, the world mind of today, may be best thought of as adolescent, still ripening towards maturity. Wonderful books like all these, and a library like the one we are opening this evening, can only help promote much needed spiritual progress. In conclusion then, to summarise, life can be understood and experienced as a spiritual journey that takes us, one by one, beyond the prevailing psyche or world mind, towards wisdom and spiritual maturity, by healing the unavoidable split between everyday ego and spiritual self, by reawakening transformative awareness of the unbreakable connection between our personal souls and the Divine Holy Spirit. Commitment to a program of regular wisdom exercises will enable individual progress on this sacred pilgrimage of life. And each who engages with such a program will benefit everyone else, contributing meaningfully in turn to the gradual and inevitable evolution of the world mind or psyche. So far, so good. But before finishing, there remains one important question to address. Where does the pilgrimage take us when life is over? Is there an afterlife, heaven and hell? To put it briefly, does the human soul survive? And the short answer I put it to you is, yes. But what happens? So here's something for you to think about. This is, I'm quoting United States Professor of Philosophy and LSD pioneer, Chris Bage. He says, the story of the soul is, in essence, a story of individual consciousness, ultimately sourced in the creative intelligence of the cosmos, moving back and forth between the physical universe and the surrounding meta-universe on a long journey of self-development. The pulse of the soul is the pulse of reincarnation, our awareness narrowing at birth and expanding at death. Reincarnation is a dance, a dance in which our earthly lives emerge from and return to our soul, the larger consciousness that preserves every thought, every tear, every joy we experience on earth and in between our earthly lives, folding all our experiences into an expanding radiance. Reincarnation gives individual consciousness an open-ended amount of time in which to learn from its mistakes and develop innate capacities. Properly understood, Reincarnation is a work of genius, as is everything else we see in our universe, from supernovas to DNA. There indeed are ideas to ponder. And I'm not saying that this is my belief at all, but they are thought-provoking ideas. And it is fitting now to remind you briefly of Thomas Merton's poetic description of what we are tonight calling the soul in conjectures of a guilty bystander. His uh, description rings true for me, as I hope it does also for you. Merton calls it a point of nothingness, a point of pure truth, the pure glory of God in us. It is like a pure diamond blazing with the invisible light of heaven. It is in everybody. And if we could see it, we could see these billions of points of light coming together in the face and blaze of a sun that would make all the darkness and cruelty of life vanish completely. And to repeat, we are already one, but we imagine that we are not. 
And what we have to recover is our original unity. What we have to be is what we are. So I leave you with that. And we'll simply finish with a prayer. The second verse of that famous and cherished Irish hymn. Be thou my wisdom, be thou my true word. Be thou ever with me, and I with thee, Lord. Be thou my great father, and I thy true son. Be thou in me dwelling, and I with thee one. Amen.